You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Petra Griffith, founder and managing director at Wedbush Adventures. And in this episode, we'll talk about a lot of stuff. For example, we'll talk about the venture debt product that Petra was working on in the past. We'll also talk about similarities and differences between big corporations and small startups. We'll talk about LA ecosystem and of course, early stage investing. So Petra, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Wedbush Ventures. Thank you, Constantine. Really excited to be here. And um, yeah, no, excited to, to talk. Um, to, you have some really great different topics. Um, so excited to dig in. As an introduction, uh, I founded Wetbush Ventures about a year ago. I come to venture investing from a product and operations background. Um, I started my career in early stage companies. I was um, in, in three different startups. One was one went, actually went IPO and the other two were acquired and then moved to larger companies. Um, spent six years at Yahoo, um, and then actually um, left Yahoo to join a, a bank and set up their venture banking and startup banking practice as well as lead, lead product for the bank. And then uh, was at Netflix for two years and and, and on the product side and, and you know, uh, started this fund because I really love the early stage. Um, I love, um, you know, helping founders and really helping founders grow and, and uh, work with them on the product side, but also you know, really have seen what um, providing capital um, can do and how that can, can is, is often a missing piece as well. And so I was excited to start the fund about a year ago. We invest in the pre-seed seed stage, um, generally invest fifty dollars to $100,000 in those stages. And mm-hmm. uh, we can talk a little bit more about what, what I look for, but it's a generalist fund, but I do have a couple of, of things I look for in, in areas of, of, uh, of interest. 100%. We'll definitely touch on to this closer to the end of the episode. So people, if you want to hear what they invest in, definitely stay tuned on. All right. Um, nice. Great background. Absolutely love it. So yeah, let's start with discussing your previous experience, especially at bigger corporations. So you were at multiple of those big corporations. What do you think is the major similarity between the big companies such as Netflix and a small startup that has less than 10 employees? Yeah, I know. I've been thinking about this question, and and to be honest, I don't know how many similarities there really are. They're very, um, you know, fundamentally different environments. There's pros and cons to both of them, and you know, I would say, you know, in a startup, it, it, let me just go to the pro of a big company. I think one thing I, I've seen repeatedly is that when you have, and this is not necessarily any big company, but companies like like Netflix and you know Yahoo in its heyday, um, I can't, you know. Uh, can't speak too much about it today. Um, I left about you know nine years ago, but um, you you have a concentration of of you know just really smart people who are thinking about the world is going. You have a lot of resources. I mean, the data science resources at Netflix are are you know, truly world class and bar none. And so it causes uh, this thought leadership and this depth of understanding. Um, that I am constantly reminded of and amazed by that you don't see as much in startups. Um, and I mean by that, it's not, and it's not like you can't have it at a startup. I just think you, you meet so many interesting people and you have so many different data points and it constantly pushes you to evolve your thinking and 
and to see things that you might not have seen before. And that's one thing I really appreciate about a big company. Um, I mean, I think there's lots of big companies where you you don't necessarily see that and where you are pigeonholed into a specific role um, because you know that's how many large companies work because you have a very specific role and you're very much more niche. Um, and that's the, the, I think the beauty of a startup is you know, the world world is at your is, is your oyster in many ways, and you wear a lot of different hats, and you're able to to play many different roles and really have an impact um, in the, in a way that is much broader. And you know, what's interesting in a large company, you have a you know you 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 tend to have more narrow focused roles, mm -hmm. but you actually have you know larger PLs and larger budgets and. Um, yeah, I think that that's one thing that I always enjoyed in, in larger companies is, you know, it, I just remember at Yahoo, we had a billion people who were logging onto Yahoo every single day and you just make one, you know, one minor change on in an ad format or in search advertising or in the search algorithm and, and you just, you just see the impact it has. And that's, there's something really powerful about that, um, that, that I sometimes miss in, in early stage companies. And I love the potential and I love the energy of early stage companies. Uh, and you don't have that as much in the in the big company. Mm -hmm. True, I can. I, I mean, to be completely honest, I've never worked at a big company. I have no idea how it feels. But I have a brother who works at Facebook. He tells me plenty of stuff from that company. So I kind of I kind of have an idea. So um, <laughs> now that we've touched on to this, uh, do you think there are any strategies that big companies apply to their, you know, uh, especially sales, maybe customer acquisition process that smaller startups can actually use as well? Or do you think there is just like literally no overlap whatsoever? No, I think there is. I mean, it's interesting you touch on on sales um, as 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 one of the areas because I I do think there is a there are processes and there is data driven metrics that organizations larger organizations use that I actually think even startups um, under ten people can really think about and that's something I think about a lot when I I talk to startups is just how um, how can you measure progress, right? And it's hard, and it's hard to find those KPIs and OKRs. But you know, it, sometimes in large companies, it's a little bit too the, it's taken a little bit too far. But I think there is, there is a lot of benefit in using uh, those, those kinds of of, of of metrics. And then the sales organization, kind of really thinking about, uh, yeah, I mean, just really thinking about branding a lot, actually. I think that's one thing that large organizations do very well, um, and also thinking through like the you know the pipeline and and as a you know as a startup, quite frankly, like you might not have a brand name as much as a large company. So if you call from you know uh, call a prospect and they've never heard of you before, mm -hmm. don't be don't be scared of that. I think there's um, a lot of thought leadership that can build be built even at a, at a at a at a startup and make you feel a lot come across a lot more. Uh, a lot bigger than you might actually be. True, true, true. Um, I mean, honestly, every time someone says something like this, I always remember this uh, this part of it from Silicon Valley, where you know the one guy was pretending to be the manager and just a regular employee. So yeah, <laughs> very very good point there. Yeah, and I mean, those... be authentic, like absolutely be authentic, and don't yeah. pretend to be something you're not. But and, you know, I see, I one thing I see startups do really well is is have thought leadership like for example in, in you know customer success or in 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 spaces that are are relatively new so like one of my portfolio companies is a company called koala and um they focus on customer um, success in a really 
started to not only started they are you know thought leaders in that space and and customer mm-hmm. success is a is a relatively new area and like what are the best practices in customer success and a lot of companies are struggling with this um and so i think there's an opportunity for startups to become thought leaders in in some of these new spaces. I mean, just like social media, you know, when I started my career, social media didn't exist and social media management sure didn't exist. And it was really, um, you know, the, the new companies that came about, it wasn't, you know, the Yahoo's or Facebook's. I mean, Facebook obviously um, started social media, but it was really like the buddy medias of the world that talked about, you know, social media management. And and so, you know, I think customer success is one of those examples of areas that is, is new and there's plenty more. Might be, might be, we'll definitely see probably someday soon. Uh, but now let's move on to the topic that I really want to discuss, which is venture debt. So when you were working at a bank in the past, you were working on the venture debt instruments, developing it for startup founders specifically, I think, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. Yeah. So I, I um, and maybe touching on the LA ecosystem a little bit, I left Yahoo in, in 2012 and I really wanted to stay in LA um, and you know, it was really seeing the, I had spent, you know, the early part of my career um, up in the Bay Area and had seen a lot of the benefits of the startup eco- ecosystem um, there. And, and LA was relatively, I mean, it's so interesting because you have so many of the, the top engineering um, schools in, in, in the country are based in LA between, um, and not just engineering, but you have Caltech and you have UCLA and you have USC and LMU and, and there's probably a bunch that I'm, I'm forgetting. Um, yet the, the, the tech ecosystem hadn't really, when you had idea lab, you had a couple of, of pockets. Um, it was really in 2010, 11, 12, um, you could see it evolve in a way that had, I, in my experience hadn't evolved before then. And I really wanted to stay in LA and, um, you know, was motivated to help, help build the LA ecosystem. So I joined a, a bank to set up their startup banking division and, you know, they had thought about it more from a hey, you know, if you you bank a ba- a startup and they raise money, then that cash sits in a deposit, and that's really interesting uh, from a bank's perspective. And so, hey, you know, you know, startups can come help us figure out how to bank startups. And you know, somewhat naively in hindsight, um, you know, set up the startup banking division, thought through well, what kind of you know products do. Do startups need? And now we need to offer e-signatures. We need to think about a better way to um, set up checking accounts and you know offer you know some free services. And and you know what you realize that ultimately startups need is is capital. Um, and so looked at you know what are different ways that you can provide capital <clears throat> to startups from a you know as a bank and as a bank at least back then uh, it's changed a little bit now. You you couldn't invest in equity. And so, um, you know, bank underwriting is very much focused on cash flow, either assets or cash flow. And, um, you know, most most startups, especially startups that are looking to, to raise venture capital, you know, don't have, <laughs> are not cash flow um, positive. Mm-hmm. And if they, if they are, they're reinvesting all that money back into the company so that they can grow more quickly. So it's really hard to do a traditional bank loan to, to a startup. And so, you know, looked into research the venture debt product and, and was able to set up that product at Grand Point Bank. And, and venture debt is interesting. There's been, you know, a, a nice evolution of different, you know, products in the last few years between uh, lighter capital and pipe, obviously, and, and, 
and, and a bunch of other players <clears throat> looking at a different way, like B2B SaaS, underwriting B2B SaaS, because the typical you know, venture debt that banks offer are really much more around, you know, uh, companies that are already venture backed and you're really underwriting the investor behind the company. You're underwriting the business too, but your repayment method, you know, you know that the company most likely won't be earning enough money to repay you. So you are, you know, you're ultimately making sure the company will continue to get funded so that that, that is your primary method of repayment. So the different, it's a, it's an interesting product. It's a great product for companies that are already venture backed um, and want a little bit more of a cushion, non-dilutive cushion, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not, it's, 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 you know, if you're not already venture backed, it's pretty hard to get venture debt. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's, that's been the case with pretty much every single person I've interviewed on this subject. If you don't have plenty of funding already, venture debt is very hard to obtain because banks are, uh, they're just not risk takers. It's, it's how banks work. That's how their business model works. All right. Now that we started speaking about building new products, uh, let's talk about uh, what you see on early stages, especially, you know, founders who are trying to figure out what should go in their product, how, uh, how they approach us. In those terms, what do you think are the major problems that you see founders making? I mean, major mistakes that you see founders making, not, not problems. Yeah, this is my favorite area because it's my my background, which is product development and product management. Um, yeah, and and product is is uh, is is an area I love to talk about because it's it's what I've done for most of my career, and so you know I think the biggest um, thing I I see founders struggle with is, is focus, and not um, and by focus I mean I see founders having a hard time focus when they don't truly understand the dynamics of the problem that they're trying to solve, and I'll give you an example. Um, you know I I my my second startup with a was a startup called Zulu Sports, and you know we started. This is my own perspective. I think other people who were there might have a different perspective, but you know we started and we had this idea that we wanted to be an outdoor sports portal, and uh, you kind of we wanted to be a central place for people to come uh, if they were outdoor sports enthusiasts. And I think it was a you know I think there was a lot of research around the market and the opportunity, and you know we were all outdoor sports enthusiasts, and so at a high level that made sense. But I don't think we really ever got to like, okay, yes, we were outdoor sports enthusiasts and we like to consume content around outdoor sports, but like what was truly our problem? You know, what, what was the problem that we were trying to solve? And quite frankly, <clears throat> you know, it took us a couple of releases um, and we launched the entire first product. I and mean, then we had what we thought was an interesting goal, but it was, it was kind of vague, it was kind of amorphous. And not until we got into it, did we realize, okay, hold on a second. You know, here are, and it's like within the outdoor sports enthusiast community, there are weekend warriors and weekend warriors don't have as much time. And so they want to you know, be able to plan their trip and find people to do it with and better understand the weather so that they can optimize the time that they have to do their outdoor sports. And, you know, once we pivoted towards that and it wasn't um, about like, you know, the top 10 gear list or this really cool windsurfing video. I mean, that's all fun and great, but it wasn't solving a core problem. Once we, we figured out what the core problem was, like that's when we got traction. And that's what I would say, like most founders have this, like there's this great, you know, market opportunity, like, uh, 
you know, like AI or, um, you know, social media or, you know, people aren't paying bills. And it's just like people come up with, you know, they're, they're completely valid um, problems, general market problems or general market opportunities, but you need to really hone in on what it is. What is your, what is that key insight? And what is that like must have problem that you're solving for? Um, and I think if you don't have that, it's easy to get distracted and it's easy to uh, solve something else or go after, um, you know, a big company offers you a contract or, you know, really, mm -hmm. really marquee partner wants to work with you. You know, you get distracted by that if you don't know, you know, what you're, what, what you're really trying to do um, and what your core problem is. And, you know, you need to be able to pivot. You need to be able to have, like we talked about before, like kind of KPIs and OKRs and measure against them. And then, and then come like evaluate and look at, is this still the key? Like, what, what are my customers telling me? Like either B2B or B2C, you know, what are they telling me? And, and is what I currently am offering them meeting their needs? And if not, why not? And then how do I evolve, <clears throat> excuse me, um, evolve or pivot? Perfect. That quote was right on point. I love it. Focus, focus, focus. That's, that's what startups do. That's what they gotta do to succeed. And that's what a lot of founders actually don't do, <laughs> ironically. Uh, so let's, since we started talking about mistakes, one more question about mistakes, and it's gonna be about founders in terms of fundraising. So when they're talking to investors, especially early stage investors, especially first time connection, like when you're just meeting the founder, what are the major things that they say to you uh, that are just like huge, huge red flags and that are repetitive? I wouldn't say they're red flags, but I think the, the three things that I think founders could do a better job of is, is one, being very clear about what your insight is on the market problem and what specific problem you're going after. I think a lot of times I see pitches where founders will explain to me, you know, the market dynamics and you know, why there's a, maybe why there's a gap in the market or why they, they come at it from a market perspective and that's fine. You need to understand, like, you need to explain to me the why now, um, but give me your, give me proof and validation that you've gone a little bit deeper and it's not just kind of the, you know, outdoor enthusiast going back to my previous example, but it's like, who within that outdoor sports enthusiast market are you going after and why? Like, that's the level of detail I often don't see. Um, I think the other thing is like what makes you like I always think about okay what's the problem you're trying to solve um why like how are you going to solve it obviously you know why you and why now and the 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 why you and why now often a lot of a lot of founders just gloss over and you know I think a lot of founders don't realize that they're they always everyone always thinks that they're unique and they're the only ones doing this and the only one solving this problem. And, you know, nine times out of 10, I've probably seen or, or um, heard of a similar pitch already. And so it's like, okay, if I have, you know, four companies that are all going after the same, same problem statement, how do I choose between them? And so think about that, like, think about like what makes you uniquely qualified to solve this problem. And then I think finally, like, a lot of especially young founders it's like to them it's very much of a pitch it's like a i'm pitching you to invest in me and that's great but like it's a two-way street and it's a 
meaning it's a long-term relationship. Like I don't just invest and then, you know, just sit back and get in touch again in five years. It's it's a, you know, not only are 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 we talking on a regular basis and sending updates on a regular basis, but especially in the early stage, you know, part of what motivates me as an investor is is helping and getting involved. And so you should be interviewing me too. Like, are mm-hmm. you, you know, do you want to work with me? Am I the right person for your for your company? Like it's especially in the early stage, it's much more than just your investors are much more than just money. A hundred percent. And by the way, there is, uh, by the time this episode is going to be released, there is going to be another episode released that is going to be talking right about this. You know, how do you ask investors those questions? How do you actually interview the investor yourself? And how do you make sure that you know, they are the right people? So scroll a little bit down there, check it out, try to understand how to ask the investor the right question without sounding uneducated or rude. So check it out. And we are moving on to the next question, which is talking about LA startup ecosystem. So you've spent quite a bit of time here in Los Angeles. And what do you think is the major change that uh, Los Angeles startup ecosystem has experienced in those years? It's been, it's been really fun to see. Uh, in, in terms of you know, in 2012, you had the first accelerator. I mean, I shouldn't say that Idealab had been, um, is on accelerator per se, but Idealab has been around for much longer than that. But it was really, you had, you know, Overture, which is, you know, I joined, um, Overture was acquired by Yahoo and I joined that team. So you have alumni from from there, you know, people like the founder of WhatsApp and the founder of Wish, they were kind of part of that team. And, and you see you know, MySpace and now Snap and you see, and there's plenty more. Those are just kind of three that come to mind. Um, and once you see alumni leaving and starting their next company, like that to me is when the ecosystem really starts to mature because you have people who've gone through the experience who can mentor and give back. And that's been, it's been really fun to see over the last, especially the last eight to 10 years, um, LA really evolve. And LA's already always had a lot of, I mean, I think that's one thing we forget is like LA's always had a lot of activity in this space, but it's, it's been put on the map more and um you know i quite frankly i what i like about la compared to the bay area is i mean there's more diversity in in thought um in terms of like there just are a lot more industry like my personal take on the bay area it's very i mean it's tech 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 sure there's different you know there's consumer tech there's you know uh, there's lots of different kinds of tech but it's it's a very um Kind of sell, like reinforcing network, and I sometimes feel like I can't ever get out of it. Whereas in LA, you just have a lot. You know, you have, um, you know, outside of technology, you have, you know, you know, real estate and financial services and entertainment, obviously. And um, so I think that diversity ha- lends for a like you see more diversity in thought and in mm-hmm. founders and difference in backgrounds and um, and in general, I say like it's changing. But historically, I would say there's been uh, of, of startups in LA have been focused more on revenue and, and generating revenue and generating profits much more so than San Francisco based startups. It's, it's a vast generalization, but that's been my, especially as a banker, what I saw, um, it's changing a little bit. And I think what, what excites me is that LA startups are starting to think big too. And in the past, I feel like they were a little bit more focused on profitability. Mm-hmm. Right, and, of growth. Yeah, as 
someone who's living in Los Angeles as well. Uh, first of all, everyone already knows that I love talking about LA, about <laughs> how good it is and how much better than San Francisco it is. Continuously encourage people to arrive here. And yeah, we also have good weather here. So I was going to say our weather is much better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Come on in. Uh, LA is waiting for you. Uh, but Moving on to the next question, networking and specifically networking for uh, women founders. So you are a part of uh, Women Founder Network. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a great organization um, started here in Los Angeles, does an annual, um, I don't want to call it pitch competition because it's much more than that, um, for, for women startup founders. And also does some great education and networking um, events as well. Um, definitely recommend um, checking, you know, checking that out. Um, <clears throat> a lot of uh, founders outside of Los Angeles have also gotten involved, and that's one of the the nice side benefits of COVID. Um, <laughs> and there are, um, you know, other. I, I think I think one thing I've seen with founders in general is that. Finding your tribe helps give you a support network. Mm -hmm. um, that and I think having a support network as a founder is really important. And you know, for some people, it is finding, you know, people who look like you or um, who are the same gender as you get, gives you that comfort level. Um, for others, it's less. It's more about subject matter or kind of how, how much they've known a person or, you know, colleague networks of of, of people that they know from the past. So. I think everybody needs to find whatever their support network is. And I think for a lot of women, especially first time women founders, having uh, a, you know, a group of women where you can just open up and talk about things that aren't going so great and, and ask them what might be considered stupid questions. I think it's, it's just important for you to have that kind of group, regardless of your age, gender, or other. 100% it's it's the case for me as well you know uh, my support group is our team at the fund where I work and you know sometimes I'm just like hey Brian uh, what is CT and he's like I did it. it's, it's a state it has nothing to do with the start <laughs> <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you gotta have those people who you can just reach out you know ask questions that might be actually extremely dumb and uh, just be comfortable with them. So yeah, great advice here. Uh, speaking of advice, one more question about uh, female founders specifically. So I'm probably going to say it over 33% of our listeners are actually women. And I wanted to ask you, what would you recommend those, uh, you know, women founders, uh, female founders? Uh, are there any resources that you would recommend them uh, to utilize right now? And, and uh, hopefully your ratio of women uh, listeners will will go up above thirty three percent. I um, hope. Doing <laughs> my, my best. That good. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I think I think there are just just general resources um, for for startup founders in general. Um, I I sometimes have you know I on the one hand I'm very supportive of women and I'm I'm very proud that um, of the ratio of of women founders in my in my fund. Um, and, I, and there's a lot of research around, uh, you know, just women founders, how just in general are much um, more prudent with the use of funds and, and efficient and, and have tend to have better outcomes. You know, at the same time, like I don't like to harp too much on, on gender. Um, I, mm -hmm. I, I go back to, you know, go find your tribe where you feel comfortable. 
um, and use that as a support network. Um, that said, I know there are, you know, uh, a lot of women find it harder to fundraise and, and you know, I think for that, um, you know, find, you know, uh, find women, uh, women venture capitalists, um, if that makes you feel more comfortable, um, find other women um, founders so that you can have that kind of conversation with them and see what has worked for them to find that network. Um, and specific resources, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, places like the Women Founders Network and there are other women networks, um, you know, I think depending on, on where you are, um, go, go find some of the resources in your area. There's also like a Women in Product, which is, has been super powerful and very open conversations. Like I, I think of those resources more as places where you can just ask those open and honest questions. Mm -hmm. 100% that's definitely the case and yeah I mean there are tons and tons of uh, beach competitions sponsored by uh, funds that are run by women founders as well so yeah just google it google it all of them are online right now you don't have to travel uh, so search it up probably you're going to find something cool but also I'll follow up with Petra to see if there are any particular sources that she would recommend and I'll include those in the description of this episode and speaking of description of this episode <laughs> moving on to the last question of today's episode which is a call to action so Petra what do you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over keep you know, go back to your product keep on working uh if you are interested in in funding and if you're in a uh, pre-seed or seed stage and you are working on a software technology product um, in areas I love are fintech, um, e-commerce enablement, um, content technology, go check out wedbushventures.com. Um, and, but in general, you know, I just, um, you know, thank you for the opportunity to come here. And, and, you know, my thing I just always think a lot about is like staying focused on product, tracking and evolving. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one message I can leave. That's, that's, probably the message I think about the most. I'm not sure it's the fun message, but it's definitely <laughs> a useful message. That's for sure. Um, my call to action is going to be follow Petra's message, of course, uh, follow her call to action and go to the description of this episode. I'll leave a bunch of useful links in there. Um, one of them is going to be a link to Petra's LinkedIn. So if you want to follow her, if you want to see what she's up to, definitely do that. And you're going to find all this good stuff in the description of this episode. So check it out. And as usually, have a good day.